I made is a great Yoda. Yoda? Yoda impression. Like the baby Yoda or the Yoda Yoda? Yoda. Okay. I'm not talking about Steve Yoda, the coach of Wisconsin basketball. I'm talking about Yoda, the little green guy. Digressing now you are. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Rob. And I'm Artie. And welcome to Tradesplaining, a podcast about two guys just shooting the breeze on international trade, business, and expat life. On today's episode, we'll talk about some interesting developments in trade rules enforcement, supply chain constipation, ouch, and can this be right, Brexit, with Anna Yerzhevska. And as always, we'll have the usual listener feedback and news roundup. So without further ado, let's get into it. All right, folks, welcome to episode 20. 20 is the atomic number of calcium. It's also the country code for Egypt, in case you don't have WhatsApp, Viber, or FaceTime. I got a funny story there. I was once calling Egypt, but didn't know it because the number was 20 country code, 24 Cairo, and then the number. I thought it was Washington, D.C., which the area code is 202. I'm not sure what, at which point I was supposed to laugh or, or why anybody ever. <laughs> I was actually dialing a, I was dialing a phone. That's probably what. One, we're digressing. And two, you've <laughs> hobarded this by intro two seconds in. At least wait a bit, Humphrey. Okay. Hobart. Anyway. Hobart? Ho- Bogarting. Yeah, thank Humph- you. Humphrey Hobart. Yeah, go ahead. It's time to bring us Please our listener feedback. It's time to bring us our listener feedback if Rob will stop interrupting. Rob, why don't you start us off since you're in such a talkative mood? Thanks, Artie. I appreciate that. We had one listener ask us uh, after our last episode whether the EU and China had actually signed the comprehensive agreement on investment that we mentioned. So I can confirm, yes, they did sign it at the end of 2020. It was pending ratification. So on both sides, they were going through it and the Europeans had started some of the consultations uh, on that. Uh, however, I think it's timely because some of the recent issues related to forced labor in Xinjiang and, and other factors had started already to gum up the works in terms of ratification. And in fact, on May 20, the EU voted to freeze ratification. So yes, it had been signed, ratification had begun, but that is now frozen. And I would say the prospect doesn't look great for the near term. No, not at all. It also comes at the same time that the, the parliament is about to get fully behind the EU's cooperation with the U.S. with uh, with Taiwan on a trade deal. And they've also, also which has been in the news, is this recent tariff truce between the EU and the U.S. So that relationship looks to be on the mend, whereas this one is sort of going in the opposite direction. But you were mentioning that China is already the biggest investment partner for the European Union. So This is true, yeah. So maybe the, the impact isn't, isn't that huge in the short term. There was another listener comment that you wanted to bring in already. Yeah, on, on a more positive note, if you listeners will know, Rob is a Debbie Downer of this uh, duo. <laughs> Another listener wrote us recently to say that when she first started working at an international border management consulting firm, she turned to podcasts to brush up on her trade knowledge, quote unquote, and that trade splaining has become her favorite. And as she says, has her constantly learning and laughing. Our only question is, really? I'm wondering about their clients. We better start getting things right. We could be the communications arm for the trade. If folks are listening, we better kind I mean, of check our facts. Yeah, it's, they're in Washington, D.C., this consultancy, and apparently yeah. they're listening. Very good. So, folks, if you're a bot, please continue to retweet our stuff. Yes, incessantly. Otherwise, we would love to hear more of your feedback at trade.splaining at gmail.com. Rob got it right this time. Did I get it right? I, I'm even going to let you read us out because that's also <laughs> my that line. Part, that was Humphrey your line, Bogart. Yeah. <laughs> 
Where else can they find us, Artie? You can find us at trade.splaining at gmail.com. Much more eloquent than the previous guy. And also on Twitter at Tradesplaining or on Instagram at trade.splaining. So tweet at us and tell us what was your favorite part of the podcast. <laughs> it says stop there. Well then, let's just jump right into this episode's news roundup, where we continually call what went wrong this week segment. Our first bit up is on supply chain, quote unquote, constipation. Rob's usage, not mine. Uh, <laughs> it's true. Yeah, it is. And so what, what, do we, what do we mean by that? Let's say in my professional career, we haven't seen significant inflation. It has not been an issue. U.S., EU, missing inflation targets years, year in, year out. And so we haven't really had to worry in economic policy making about that. Now, come post-Brexit, lots of stimulus, lots of spending, lots of increase in demand. Do we have something new that's happening? So what we're seeing across the board is inflationary pressure on commodities. So this is your your iron ore, your wood, your coffee, and so on. But we also see upward pressure on producer prices, shipping containers, intermediate goods, semiconductors, which we talked about, and other, other factors. And we even are reading in Nikkei Asia that this is happening in China. So they're seeing inflation in many, many areas. So the question we have to ourselves and which economic policymakers have to answer is, is this structural? In other words, are we looking to a high inflation event over the long term? Or are we simply having a little spike because everybody is buying that new couch and that new car because we're coming out of COVID. And it, I think it kind of remains to be seen. We know high inflation or rapidly increasing inflation can be quite distorting when it comes to trade. I think we should also just put a little note out for our listeners that upward pressure is economists speak for things getting more expensive. More expensive. Yeah, that's correct. So we started this podcast <laughs> to not say things like upward pressures. Okay. A downward pressure would be... Just editing the script now. punching you. <laughs> Uh, yes, I, to get back to your point, Rob, I think I would agree with the, the latter. And this, at least initially, this probably seems more like a, a short-term effect of economies opening back up again, pent-up demand being channeled into places like lumber as a direct result of COVID, right? People are buying houses, people are doing home improvements, buying new desks like me for their work-from-home setups and things like this. It was pushing the price of lumber up. My dad can't get any tiles in Home Depot, things like this. I think the usual suspects have been saying continually for years now that inflation is a problem. So this is nothing new from that standpoint. I just don't think... Yeah, I, I would agree with the people who say that it's, it's to be expected. But anyway, apparently tariffs do have an effect. Tell us about that, Rob. Yeah, an old story. So we know uh, the U.S. under the Trump administration. Tariff both, man. Tariff man. B Billy Joel had Orange piano. tariff man. Billy Joel had piano man. We've so got tariff man. Piltdown man. We have all these. So... They imposed tariffs on the, the, the majority of a value of trade coming from China. The idea was to bring uh, manufacturing back to the U.S. We knew that this was a long shot. I think people who were thinking people knew that. Um, thinking people, I like that's very well Can we put. say that? Yeah. Of course, we, did, we had estimates then. So I think you and I talked about estimates on the hundreds of millions, billions of lost economic value because of this. Huge numbers with a Y. Huge. So what we now see is data on what the actual effect has been. So the effect has been to reduce imports from China. So in tens of billions, imports have gone down in, in certain categories of products like telecom equipment, cell phones, furniture, even cotton apparel and others. What has been the effect, though, has been it's been trade diverting, what we call. So other countries have stepped in to satisfy the import demand. And one of the big winners is Vietnam. In semiconductors, we also see Taiwan, Malaysia and others. So we, we, see, we see it has had an effect. 
We think the effect is probably overall not efficient because it's it's distorting. However, I don't, I don't think the U.S. is going to back away from tariffs in the short term. We've talked about that with the trade guys and so on. And we know China is still coming back up as an exporter to the U.S. Very strong market. They've jumped into a bunch of gaps and they're growing when other countries like Mexico are stable and haven't been able to to relaunch. So I think it's, it's kind of a follow-up to what effects do tariffs have and how does this affect us in the long term? And over to you, Catherine Tai has said, USTR has said they will review these tariffs, taking into account such data. What do you think this means? I think this is sort of the trade policy version of uh, whack-a-mole, right? <laughs> so you, I think it's important. Also, it's funny. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's but One mole's China. Exactly. Exactly. Just when you think you bop China on the head, uh, Vietnam pops up. I think it's an exa- It's important to to highlight for for listeners who may not be in this field that a tariff does not necessarily make a product start being made in America magically, right? So that takes mm. other things that we talk about, flanking policies and investment, and these take years to to come to fruition. In the short term, what you're seeing is manufacturers or people who are selling you these products just saying, okay, Chinese imports just got more expensive. I'm going to go to Vietnam. And now you're seeing the U.S. look at Vietnam, talking about currency manipulation, a case about tires, funnily enough. So continental, you'll be surprised to know, is not made in the U.S., which would be a shock to my, my cousins. So I think it's important to, to highlight this fact that there, there are short-term ramifications. You may decrease imports from country X, in this case China, but it will just find a way. Right? It's sort of like mm. trying to plug... The demand is there. It's trying to plug your plug a hole in a dike with your finger. So we're talking with Anna about Brexit. We, we got more Brexit. Yes, even more Brexit news. Tell it's, us. Yeah. So months later still, it seems Brexit is also making for some unhappy fish in addition to unhappy people. That's in contrast to what we've heard, actually. And this is my new segment, so let me just continue Please with this. Please go bit. ahead. Thanks, Humphrey. <laughs> like a bad episode of The Tudors, Brexit has pitted... British and French fishermen against one another. Under an agreement between Britain and the EU, so French fishermen must acquire licenses to fish in Jersey's waters. Not New Jersey, I'm not talking about Belmar. (laughs) To get these licenses, they have to provide data showing that they were doing this for five years before the referendum in 2016. Critics say that smaller boats lack the necessary equipment and the licenses are arbitrary and restrictive, something that the French know all about. They don't mind that. Existentialism. Thank you, Albert Camus. <laughs> French officials have even gone so far as to say that if Britain broke its commitments on fishing, because they're angry about it, retaliation could include action on financial services, and wait for it, even cutting off electricity to the island of Jersey. Funnily enough, France supplies 95% of Jersey's electricity. Is it an island, Jersey? It's an island. Okay. With, with Jersey, we're talking about, it's not Staten Island. Jer- New Jersey is a figurative <laughs> island. Ah, Yes, in, in our consciousness. In an, in an ocean of liberal elites. Well, Jersey, the island, is an island in the English Channel. I think it's, but I think it's a good example for the later conversation of a small mechanical issue related to Brexit that could, it will create inefficiencies, higher costs, and even, even national tensions. And that nobody thought about, and probably because it couldn't fit on the side of a bus. I think they thought about it, but they didn't talk about it. I don't think they thought about it. They knew about fish. Anyway, Jacob Rees-Mogg said they'll be happier fish because they're being caught by British fishermen. Is what I'm is what's surprising about your little anecdote here. It's because they actually use Cadbury's to catch the fish. I bet there are guys the, who are the testing. The French use foie gras. There are guys who are testing fish happiness on this. There's a, there are guys. There yeah. are academics who do, yeah, do that. Before they catch them. How happy are you on a scale of zero to flipper? From zero to free Willie. Uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, too soon. Too soon. Right. Well, he, no, he's free. He's free. So that's Willie true. would be a high level of happiness. Yeah, that's true. Till he well, got caught. Till he got caught by uh, 
Japanese fisherman, Michael Mads, cut too soon. Anyway, Swagzit, tell us a little about yeah, that. Yeah, we don't have to talk about Brexit anymore because now we have Swagzit. And nobody puts Switzerland in a corner. <laughs> so so the EU is clearly Switzerland's biggest trading partner, more than a billion dollars traded every day. And many, many other connections exist. So there's over 120 agreements between Switzerland and the EU on everything from medical devices to air traffic control to you know trucks to all sorts of different kinds of standards. So the EU had said at some point, and Switzerland agreed, let's negotiate a framework agreement so we don't have all of these little things going. And so we have some sort of uh, higher level relationship. And that's been under negotiation for seven years. Those of us who live here know you can't rush the Swiss. So no. seven years is not that long, really. But this week, the Swiss say, we're tearing it up. We are not interested in the framework agreement. We can start negotiating again from zero. Punto finale. Exactly. The guy that did it is actually Italian. Italian Swiss. It's always in Italian. Yeah. So we end up with a situation where this framework agreement that's been under negotiation is now gone. There's no plan B. And the, U the EU has said, we will not renegotiate these many other agreements. So this is going to be like a Brexit in the sense that all of these privileges Swiss companies have enjoyed are going to be gone. And the first we read, the first one is on medical instruments. So right now, if you export medical instruments of certain types to the EU, you act kind of like an EU company. After this expires, you suddenly have to have a representative in the EU. You have to relabel everything. You have to pay more. Because you've got to hire people there, you've got to you know create new uh, labels and so on. The next thing will be research funding. So right now, Swiss universities can participate in uh, big EU research funding, and that's going to be curtailed or changed significantly. So we'll start to see these progressively these issues. Why did the Swiss do it? Does this make any sense? First of all. The, the EU was imposing that their citizens could come and work here and also receive social benefits. So mm. the Swiss said... It's a big no-no. We talk about immigration. The Swiss are really worried not about foreign immigration, but French, Italians, and Germans. We know that. So they think all these guys are going to come in and get on the social benefits. Second thing is they want to be able to protect their wage levels. And they're worried that Swiss labor law, which and the process the Switzerland uses to keep wages high, will somehow be disallowed. And the third thing, although Switzerland agreed to it, was to have a dispute resolution mechanism. So the European Court of Justice would have some sway over this. So at the end, the Swiss kind of backed away from it. And we will now see, as we're doing a little bit with Brexit, maybe not on the same scale, what the effect will be. I think my initial reaction is that Brexit has given both parties an example of the worst case scenario or close to a worst case scenario. So they know what could go wrong if they don't get it absolutely right. I think it'd be silly to tell Swiss voters or Swiss politicians who are against signing any type of agreement with the EU and want to go swags it, as you say, that it's going to be all bad. Technically, it is possible to work it out, as the Beatles said, but I think a lot of things would have to go right. I think if they're smart, which most case they are, I think they will they'll, they'll find sort of some sort of middle ground because I don't think anybody wants another Brexit type of situation because for the EU, Switzerland would be the second country in their five years to follow Britain. And that could just lead, they're probably worried about a domino effect, whereas Switzerland is worried about the economic ramifications that, that could happen. Yeah, I think we see whatever the reputation, the Swiss are not only driven by money, because economically this isn't, is, is obviously not the best decision. I think you're right in the sense, okay, it's not like Brexit because Switzerland's not a member, but it does bring into question all these kinds of association agreements with the European Union. So let's see, and, and let's, in a way, let's open our mind to the fact the Swiss also have sovereignty issues. They also have issues about free movement of people. They also have their own economic and political system. And in this case, they could not accept what the Europeans were, were asking to impose. I think on a wider point, I think it's also why it's so important 
that we're able to communicate the benefits of trade or globalization in a straightforward way that doesn't involve thousands of pages of white papers so that when things like this do come up in a country like Switzerland, which has a form of direct democracy, that we're in a bit safer hands, right? So it doesn't come down to just a political issue because I think we've taken the politics out of these types of decisions when it's it's probably a core ingredient in any discussion we have we have on this. Yeah, and maybe this in this case, just the, knowing the benefits, maybe it wasn't an obvious decision. And having been to Ticino, I could tell you they're not they don't like it when you call them Italian. Yeah, I think for us to talk about immigrants in Switzerland might be. But let's face it, they're it's kind a little of, touchy. They're kind of Italian. <laughs> That's us. Well, it's not like me changing my name to uh, Molibichiri Muller. <laughs> it's yeah. well, American. It's obvious. <laughs> That's not a good thing is what I'm saying. When that backlash comes, it's going to hit you too. On that happy note, that about does it for the news roundup. We'll have Anna Yerzhevska on in just a moment to talk about all things international trade, borders, and customs. Dr. Anna Yerzhevska is a customs and international trade expert, as well as the founder and director of Trade and Borders Customs Consultancy and an associate fellow at the UKTPO, which I don't know what that is. I don't know what that is either. She advises private and public sector clients, including the UN, the UK government, NICE, the British Chamber of Commerce, as well as a range of private sector companies. Anna is a published author and frequently appears in media and gives evidence and advice on trade and customs to the UK Parliament's Select Committee. So Anna, welcome to the podcast. Glad to have you join us. Thank you for having me. Let's start off by having you tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you get into the field of trade? What's the journey been like? Well, I started in trade a while back. I started by doing a PhD on rules of origin and free trade agreements. And back then, no one, including my own family, had any idea of what I was working on and what free trade agreements were. And after finishing my PhD, I worked in consulting and started coming to Geneva for various trade policy events. And then Brexit happened. And a couple of years have passed since then. And it's all a bit of a bit of a blur. It's it's incredibly odd. And I, I still find it odd when all of a sudden a niche and a highly technical area you work in becomes front page news. It becomes something that politicians debate, comment on, or argue about. And all of a sudden, everyone everyone's talking about it. Everyone's commenting on rules of origin. Everyone's talking about customs and so on. And it's it's a bit surreal, I have to say. Even after five, six years, it's, it's, it's still a bit surreal. You mentioned that your field, which is really sort of a niche has become mainstream overnight, what seems like overnight. I think when we talk about cross-border trade rules and, and procedures, people often take them for granted, people even in our field. So maybe it would be helpful if we could talk a little bit more about that. Specifically, what do we mean when we talk about you know cross-border trade and rules and procedures and why is this important? So every time a product or a service crosses a border, there are certain procedures that need to take place. There are certain requirements that need to be met. And of course, it's slightly different for a product, which is a, a tangible good versus a, a service, which, which is not. However, there are always some requirements, some, some things that need to happen. And cross-border cross-border procedures determine how easy it is to trade between countries. I think that at the end of the day, that, that's what this comes down to. It determines how quickly this can happen, how uh, expensive it is, and so on. Borders mean friction. They mean additional paperwork. They mean additional complexity. They are they are quite difficult to, to, to kind of to deal with. Border procedures are expensive. Borders also come with additional taxes, which is customs duties, and in some cases import VAT. So you have the, the paperwork, you have the additional costs, you have 
time that is required for, for the grid to cross the border, uh, checks, controls, uh, and so on, which is why for decades countries have been moving towards a deeper economic integration model. So they were finding, trying to find ways to simplify border procedures or minimize the impact of borders by either entering into a trade deal or a customs union or by efforts around trade facilitation and by trying to simplify border procedures and make them more efficient. I think cross-border rules and trade has now become quite an interesting topic and, and quite an interesting case study because with Brexit, we have something that we've not had, we've not had for a long time, which is an introduction of new customs and regulatory border where for decades we've not had one. So we're seeing this process in reverse, which is quite interesting because for, for, for decades countries have been trying to minimize the impact of borders. And here we are, we have two, well, we have a country and, and a group of countries that have decided somewhat unilaterally, but let's keep that for now, to introduce a new border, which, which makes, makes for an interesting case study. Well, that's a perfect segue to the next question. It's almost like you knew what was coming. So it's been a few <laughs> months since 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 Brexit happened, right? And so what's what's changed since January? We've heard rumors that France may be invading Jersey, not New Jersey, unfortunately. The, the original the other one. Jersey, the OG Jersey. So I mean, <laughs> what's going on there? Is the world ending? Yeah, Brexit Brexit happened, but to be fair, I think it's still far from from over. Brexit is less of an event and, and more of a process that in a way will define the EU-UK relationship perhaps for the next few decades. And, and actually, even from a from a technical standpoint, we're not done. If you just look at what's happening in Northern Ireland with this Irish Sea border, the fact that this border still isn't fully implemented, that it's still not agreed on, that, that we're still discussing what it's supposed to look like and what kind of agreements should be put in place to make it sustainable, that we're very, very much not done with that part of the border. And if you look at the UK's other borders, the UK is only the beginning of implementing controls, procedures, and and introducing things on, on our side of the border, on the UK side of the border. So it, it's going to be a long process and we've only, we're only now just getting started. So I think saying that Brexit happened, yes, it happened, but at the same time, we're going to be talking about this for years and years to come, I think. My other passport is a UK passport. That was going to be my European passport. Can I talk to? Like that was going to be my, my thing? Well thought out. It was kind of, it was a good one. I'm getting a Swiss one until swags it happens. <laughs> <laughs> so if we, I mean, if we take the, put the politics aside and we take your, your thesis and well supported that it's a process, has it been that bad for business? Because we hear, we hear either it's the end of the world or it's a few percent different. Are the fish happier, is what he means to say. We'll come around the fishery subsidies again. That's every every episode has fishery subsidies. But have, have businesses really suffered? Are those selling it, UK businesses selling to the EU, for instance? And how is that playing out? So the simple answer to your question, has it been that bad, is yes, it has. Uh, and it's still bad. And I don't necessarily think that, because you mentioned the, the couple of percent or the, the, the visible impact on, on, on trade flows and so on. I don't even think that this is this is where you measure the impact of Brexit. It has been really, really bad for businesses and businesses for, for service providers such as freight forwarders, customs brokers and so on. And it's a, it's a bit of a, it's a combination of factors because for the last five years, as you probably have noticed, Brexit has been incredibly politicized and it's been a very long kind of debate, discussion, but it was really one that was far from, from being constructed in any way it was we, we were talking about everything and we're doing everything except getting ready or getting everyone ready everyone that needed to be to be ready for the first of january and the situation on the ground i would say is quite quite scary the level of understanding awareness and and compliance with the 
new rules is, is incredibly low. UK SMEs that have only traded with the EU, they're finding this extremely, extremely difficult. And, and we're now in the middle of May, and I don't think it's getting any better. I think it's just some companies have just simply given up on, on, on trying to understand what it all means. So it's basically it's a generation of SMEs that haven't really tra- who haven't traded outside the European Union, so didn't have the, the muscles to do it, but isn't that something they can learn? Or do you think this is this is going to be, let's say, trade diverting over the over the long term? They can learn, absolutely. I mean, at the end of the day, it's not rocket science. You can learn these things, but I think it's just how much you need to learn in a short period of time. I think it's just incredibly overwhelming. So at the moment, what, what's happening is that we have businesses that are overwhelmed and are some of them are not even fully aware of what the new rules are. Actually, quite, quite a few of them are not fully aware of what the, the new results are are especially with the simplifications introduced by the UK government. The UK government keeps on adding new simplifications, adding extensions and so on, meaning that businesses are in this state of permanent change and, and permanent unknown. And at the end of the day, businesses need to learn to be compliant. They need to learn what they need to do to be compliant. However, to be compliant, the, the rules need to also be enforced. You need to have either the carrot or, or, or a stick. And at the moment, we don't have anything. There's no carrot. There's no stick, but you have mushy peas. <laughs> yes. I think we uh, got the title. <laughs> I think for, from my perspective, one thing I've seen is that it's, Brexit has been, if anything, it's been fantastic for Twitter. But does it really tell us anything about the, the direction of global trade? Rob talked a little bit about it before, but Switzerland is also backing away from a framework ever so slightly with the EU. And people are saying that the era of free trade is dead in the US. We may have to rename it free trade with benefits. But <laughs> the question, the question, I guess the question we want to put to you is, what do you think the new normal will look like? Is Brexit just a test case for other countries trying to do much of the same? So we're hearing the same in Scotland, for example. What will the new normal look like in your opinion? Or is this just a hiccup? I don't think this is what the new normal would look like. I mean, yes, we, we seem to have a new wave of protectionism. We have Brexit, obviously, we have the US, we have India leaving our step and, and the, the Indian government advocating by Indian policy. But on the, on the other hand, we have the African continental free trade area and we have the kind of deepening of cooperation and, and trade and, and, and economic integration in that region, as well as in, in other regions. I think 10 years ago, about 10 years ago, maybe a bit more than 10 years ago, there was this notion of all the easy FTAs haven't been completed and that now we only we're only left with difficult ones, the ones that are for some reasons, whether it's a sensitive sector, political political issues, difficult to complete. I think if it's done anything, Brexit has sort of helped people remember. I guess there's that overused expression: you don't know what you've got until till it's gone. And so it's highlighting the negatives. And everything we've talked about now is not as easy to put on the side of a bus that we're losing 350 million. You can always put well, things on the side of the bus. This is one thing that Brexit has taught us. You can always <laughs> simplify things enough to put it on the side of the bus. Whether it's or true or not, bus. it's another thing. Under the bus as well, yeah. <laughs> under the bus as well. We, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm kind of thinking, I mean, we've talked also about how whatever, there is this coming future where Geneva would run trade and politicians and so on would step out and become more of a technocratic game. And uh, I think that's... That era is over. Now we see voters and politicians coming back into the game. For better or for worse, I think it's probably necessary. What, what do you think? I mean, should we should we delegate all of this trade business to Geneva and let people like Artie, us? Artie run? <laughs> yes, exactly. Run yes. It. And yes. 
So I want to talk to you also about the kind of the, the, a generational change somehow and how that might affect trade, because you're a, a different generation than most of the folks that we interview on, most of the analysts we talk to on the podcast, and we've had people come back to us and say, what's the next generation of, of experts and thinkers thinking about this? So do you think there's going to be a generational change, and what is this next generation, your generation or, or the generation after you? going to tell us about trade and how is that going to affect? I mean, I'm not entirely sure if I would put this in the context of a generational gap. I think it was, or it is more about just inclusiveness. We traditionally had trade, politics, finance, and, and other incredibly important areas of public life, economy, and so on, being governed by people who look a certain way, are of a certain age, have a certain accent, and, and in general, they are quite similar. To each other. And I think there were, there still are entire groups of people that were excluded from that conversation. And one thing that we've hopefully seen in the, in the last couple of years is, is letting these people join the, the, the debate, join the conversation. And seeing that you don't need to have a, a, a bunch of, of the usual suspect at the table in Geneva. I think it's just in general, we need more inclusiveness in trade. And, and how about the role of female economists and trade specialists? Do you think opportunities are opening up there for them specifically? Opening or, or being opened? Yes, I guess, I guess perhaps slowly, but it's still a bit of an uphill battle. I'm sure it's, it's similar when you're talking about getting young professionals to the table to be part of the debate the same with female trade experts, economists, and so on. As we mentioned, I'm, I'm a member of Trade Experts, one of the organizations that is trying to work towards more inclusiveness and, and getting women out there and kind of helping them become visible and, and, and participate in events, conversations, debates, and so on. I think it, it's there's definitely a need for these types of organizations, and, and we still have we still have a way to go. I thought it was unfair when she was saying people of a certain type with a certain accent with a certain age and you were pointing at me, Artie. I was glaring I at you. I thought that was unfair. <laughs> I was pointing at you with my eyes. <laughs> so, Michelle, what should we be asking Anna now before we get into the expat focus? That part about women's experiences is pretty irrelevant. Do you mean, so you mean in, in every field or do you mean, is there a particular aspect to trade? Because I think there might be. I mean, I don't know, because obviously I, I work in trade, but I've noticed that women trade experts, we have a couple, we had a couple of conversations, a couple of calls where some of us were saying, look, I've had this experience at the conference or I had uh, this experience at work and so on. And we... I think we all kind of came from this perspective of, oh, I must have been unlucky or just me or I've done something wrong. And then all of a sudden we had everyone else saying, yeah, that happens to me too. It happens all the time. And then you start seeing that it's not necessarily, it's not you, <laughs> it's the system. So what, what would you say to, to, I mean, what would be some practical things that folks, people like Artie and I are putting together panels, conferences, we're putting together teams of folks. What kinds of things should we be thinking differently about or what 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 kinds of things do you recommend we you know I, I think you won't necessarily be part of the problem given your focus on, on inclusiveness and, and getting young people to the table and so on I think it's just getting <laughs> getting a panel of diverse speakers if you have a panel of five men at this roughly the same age and and they they all seem to be from the same background and all know each other you might be you might not be on the right track you, you might not, not be paying that not great Bob 
<laughs> and I, you know, at the end of the day, I completely get this. And I've organized panels before, and it is the question of who do I know? But that's why organizations such as Trade Experts, organizations that help people find all these amazing experts, because there are amazing experts. I think that's a perfect segue into the next set of questions, which most of our listeners will know are more expat focused, but still very serious, scientific, <laughs> data driven, Rig- rigorous. So Anna, you've got an interesting story. You're from you're originally from Poland, but now you're based in both the UK and Geneva. So you're sort of an expat squared, right? So what have you learned about your home country living abroad? As I mentioned, partly in, in two different countries over this time. Yeah. What did you notice, for example, about Poland that you wouldn't have otherwise? Yeah, I'm an expert expat or professional expat. I left Poland in 2003 and I lived in France for a bit. Then I moved to the UK and I moved to Japan for a year and a half. And then two years ago, I moved to Geneva. It's it's it's, it's interesting. I mean, I, I just spent during lockdown, I spent a couple of months back in Poland for the first time since 2003. It was the longest uh, you know, I've, I've, I've gone back to, to Poland for. And it's, it's interesting when you experience a bit of a reversed cultural shock. But uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not necessarily, I'm not necessarily sure where my national identity is at the moment. I don't feel 100% Polish. I definitely don't feel 100% British. Yeah, I think it's after after a while, it just becomes less of an issue. You're just used, used to, to being foreign I've, everywhere. I've been to two two cities in Poland, Chicago and Milwaukee. The two, <laughs> the two biggest <laughs> Polish cities, yes. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's correct. I, love I, that told, joke. I told him not I to say that. that. Oh, oh, no, this, is, this right. is absolutely true. We'll cut that. We're we'll getting... That. We're getting we're getting canceled. <laughs> you, you were going to say something already. I was going to say, don't say that. <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> just to just to expand a little bit on reverse culture shock. What what do you what what did you learn? Like what kind of came back? to You said hmm, I, I don't remember this or you notice certain things when you live in a foreign country. You pick up on things that are different, and and you don't kind of notice how this country starts growing on you in a way, and how do you start changing by being in that environment? And then after 10, 15 years, you go back, and all of a sudden things that were normal before you left start being slightly old and you pick up on, on things and say well that that's that's not really what I like anymore that that's a bit different and and all of a sudden you notice and I think that that's what got me I think it was a bit unexpected when you notice that you've actually picked up more from the country from the from the other country where you live than than you than you thought and you've actually changed a, a lot as a person by living in that environment so in Geneva we're very conscious of the fact we're a border entity here we're right next to the next next to the to the French many things are coming across the border, such as petrified bats, 60 kilos of spring rolls, and so on. What's the most absurd, like, local story you've heard? What kind of impressed you in terms of... And I've recently crossed the, the French-Swiss border with a big box of Amazon just in front of the border patrol. And as I was doing this, I all of a sudden realized that this goes against everything that I do professionally because I'm just carrying something <laughs> that was sent to France and not paying duties on it. And, and, and it's clearly illegal and it's clearly tax avoidance and, and duty avoidance and smuggling across we, the border. Um, well, now we can't put this in the podcast. You just admitted to... to, to... To, to a crime. But at the end of the day, this is be- below the certain value uh, threshold, and and clearly the border officers were not that interested. Wink, wink. Unless it's filled with milk. <laughs> no, 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 no. no <laughs> or <not>. spring rolls. <laughs> Anything with meat, but uh, computer components or whatever it could have been. B- Boris sure. Johnson's biography is okay, but yeah, leave the meat where it is. <laughs> so I think. The next question we'd like to ask is, is, is again, more Brexit focused and keeping with the theme of the interview. And that is on a scale of zero to, say, Jacob Rees-Mogg, 
How happy are the fish in, in the English Channel now post-Brexit? Because he's he was saying basically that they're going to be happier fish because they're being caught by British fishermen rather than the French. I love the fact that this sounds like something out of Monty Python, but it is actually something that's been said in, in the Parliament and was part of an actual political debate in the UK. This, this is how insane Brexit is, that that was actually something that, that's part of the debate. I think the fish are ecstatic. I think they must be incredibly proud of the new borders, and they're probably just wondering about the new voter ID cards and whether or not they'll be asked to pay for it. As everyone else in the UK. Okay, at the moment. I think we've moved so, on. They're still at a Michael Gove. They're not quite yet at the Jacob uh, Rees-Marks. <laughs> this might be something to survey. I think another boon here to academics. Yeah, this is how they set a base, set a baseline and N- numbers and integers are overrated. <laughs> so we, we are rigorous, as I already mentioned. One of the things we've been doing uh, research ourselves, we're maybe not practicing academics, but we are academics in our spare time. I identify as an academic. Have you, <laughs> have, you, have you had your bike stolen? Because this is, of course, something people do in Geneva. And if not, maybe there's things that get stolen near you. Have you had something else stolen? That, that's one thing that coming from Poland and then having left in London for over a decade, I think when I look at, at crime levels in Geneva, it's just kind of cute in a way. I moved here from London. The fact that your bike gets stolen and that's considered a crime, you know, that's just... It's like, oh, cat stuck in tree. Oh, that's nice. It's perspective. But no, I must live in a bit of a bubble because I've not had anything stolen. I'm still very much surprised when people tell me that they've had things stolen because for me Geneva is it's one of these places where where nothing happens there's no crime there's no drama so yeah no I've, I've not had anything stolen I feel like I'm missing out now on, on the proper experience of living in Geneva okay folks well, you know whose bike to steal next thank you I appreciate that we're going to finish off the interview with sort of a, a lightning round. So Switzerland is a land of duopolies. But since this is the Brexit recap of the recap episode, we're going to mix it up a little bit. All so right. Co- co-op or Migro? Migro, absolutely. Oh. Even though they sell dried insects, which is weird. Okay, okay. Wrong answer. It's <laughs> also so, so, so a leading question. <laughs> How about this one? This one just came to me. Harrods or Globus? Harrods. Sorry, again, you know. Come on, that wasn't a difficult one. Harrods, it was just, it's Globus with a different name. Is it? I I don't know. Nah, (laughs) come on. I'm just winging it. (laughs) Another poorly, that's why we have scripts, son. That's why we, you can see where we don't have one. I just, I just winging it. Winging it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, 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 one more. Cadbury or uh, Lint? Lint. Yeah. Come on. So you, some things, you want that some things are better here. It hasn't gone that far because many Brits would really favor British chocolate. And they would be wrong. Yes, yes. I, I guess so, yeah. Will they also pick Vauxhall over BMW? You're not helping me with my whole passport thing. <laughs> <laughs> they can't revoke it yet, can they? <laughs> no, but what the hell use is it? Uh, firewood. Anyway, it's a different episode. Anyway, I think when it comes on. to chocolate and cheese, uh, Switzerland wins hands down. That's not even a competition. Stilton. So, so then I guess we know the answer to Stilton or Gruyere. I mean, that's not even that's not even the same category, is it? Not a fan of the blues. <laughs> I love, I the, love, blues, but, uh, I love blues, the blues, but but the blues, but cheese here is fantastic. It's good. Okay, check check. We can put in the ding 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 song. What about this one? Roger Federer or Andy Murray or Stan Wawrinka? Does it count if I only know one of these names? <laughs> Pick that one. <laughs> Andy Murray. Pick that one. Yay! <laughs> so I think that, that just about does it for our, for our interview. Where can people go, Anna, if they're looking for more of your work? 
I would say my website would be a good place to start. Trade and Borders. Tradeandborders.com. Yeah, as in trade and borders. Literally what I do. Trade and, and borders. .com. And how can folks find out more about Trade Experts? They can Google Trade Experts and our website will come up. The website is being revamped, but we're also on Twitter. Excellent. Anna, thanks once again for, for this interview. I think we learned a lot. It's good to come back to Brexit. I don't think we talk about it enough. compared to the rest of the world (laughs) we definitely don't this is only like the eighth episode we've done on That brings us to this week in local news. You wouldn't believe this was true unless you lived in Geneva or, let's say, anywhere else. So we've got a couple of interesting things we want to keep people updated on. First of all, Chernobyl vodka. It's a thing. It's a thing. And even better than the idea of Chernobyl vodka is the name they came up with. Atomic with a K. With a K. Okay. Yeah, you will glow. You'll get that glow. You, you, you'll get that that <laughs> vodka glow that could only come from nuclear. So can I soil. buy it? I'm ready. I'm, I'm ready to buy. Anyway, it. authorities. You can actually because authorities have seized and confiscated 1,500 bottles of said atomic, an artisanal alcohol spirit made using only the finest apples grown near the Chernobyl nuclear power plant for reasons unknown. It's Both perfectly gro- safe, folks. They're growing for reasons unknown as well as why they seized it. Apparently. And the putting in bottles. Professor Jim Smith, who set up the Chernobyl Spirit Company after spending seven years working in the disaster zone, he now has two heads, revealed in a press release that the first experimental batch of Atomic was intercepted by authorities after leaving a distillery in northern Ukraine. And by distillery, he means the actual nuclear reactor. The nuclear reactor where they just put a little faucet on it. Yeah. Yeah. The shipment was intended for delivery to the UK, but now it remains in the hands of Kiev prosecutors. Professor Smith said it was unclear why, and I think I have a reason as to why. They're drinking that with the those spring rolls that yeah, were on weeks see, ago. If you see a couple of big white Ukrainian dudes in suits glowing at night, you'll know where the uh, atomic was. <laughs> and they look happy. Would you drink it? No. No? It, no. I would drink it. I mean, there's but so many things in the things we this. drink that are... I would go for it. Why not? Well, so many things you drink. <laughs> <It's true. laughs> there's no we in this discussion. There's a good variety there. My body is a temple, David. <laughs> and I only put into it uh, five guys. Yeah, exactly. Only five guys and Coke. But never McDonald's. (laughs) Wouldn't be caught dead. So bringing it a little closer to home, I wanted to share something. You remember we talked about toads and creating toad passageways, which was very important here in Geneva. My grandma said I did become a prince in the end. (laughs) Who kissed him? We're asking. So this has now been complemented with a passageway for salamanders. So spotted salamanders. Apparently there are 2,500 of these little fellows. Here in, here in Geneva, but they're not distributed evenly. So in Verrier, there's a, not a big population, maybe 20 or 30 of these little guys. It's a cluster. But to get them in the mood to reproduce, we need uh, special conditions. So we've decided, the uh, local utility decided to build a passageway. Apparently, the objective is help them meet each other, create a low-light environment, maybe a little bit of humidity, slow running water, help them stick together. Some Barry White music <laughs> in the background. So, I mean, I guess it's like, I mean, if you want to kind of understand, it's like a salamander tinder or a salamander nightclub. You took the words right out of my mouth. <laughs> Tindamander. Tindamander. Please, please click here we've we've just copyrighted that and this is the first of its kind but the local utility the sig is very interested in uh, replicating this in case apparently each of these females produces 20 to 30 larvae which could produce more salamanders and so on you lost me at larvae all i'm thinking about (laughs) is like the background music we don't know what the next animal is but we've done salamanders we've done toads what could it be we'll keep our eye on local news folks That about wraps up this week's episode brought to you by the number 20 and milk for strong bones. Hashtag got milk. 
We'd like to thank our guest, Anna J. Yerzhevska, what he said, for joining us and discussing Brexit, the economics profession, and, of course, living as an expert. That's right. In addition to thanking Anna Yerzhevska, we also want to thank Michelle for helping producing this episode. And also, please don't forget to download this episode if you haven't already and subscribe to make sure you catch our next episode coming out very soon. You can also leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Make sure you do. I know you have time. You can follow us on Twitter at Tradesplaining or on Instagram at Trade.Splaining. Also, email us your questions the old-fashioned way at Trade.Splaining at gmail.com. As always, we've got to remind you, listen responsibly.